Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Natavati and John Damaris. Hello and welcome to the Art of War podcast. I'm joining you live from the Philippines. I'm your host, John Damaris. And with us today is none other than, uh, none other than the legendary John Lennon to talk about Nick Nanavati's Tyranids list that he's been doing very well with. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Nick, who is a very well-known 40K player across the world, winning all kinds of major events, ranging from Adepticon to LVO and everything in between. And... Uh, as usual, you can find us on the Frontline Gaming Network, which if you haven't, you should definitely subscribe. There's four high-quality competitive fo- podcasts on the Frontline Gaming Network, uh, well worth the listen. And uh, as as always, in this first episode, we'll be breaking down the tactics of Nick's list. So um, we'll do this a little different. Normally, I would have Nick introduce us, but John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then uh, tell us a little bit about Nick, and let's get started talking about his list. All right, so um, I'm John Lennon. Uh, I'm a bit of a Tyranid and Genius Circle player myself, so they were kind enough to bring me in to talk about Nick's list. Um, I've run Tyranids and Genius Circle for the last 10 years, and I'll switch to other armies occasionally, like my Space Marines at LVO, but I always come back to my Tyranids and Genius Circle. Um, I actually got a Best in Faction uh, Tyranids trophy two years ago, and I think I was number two in Genius Circle for both of the last two years, impressively, uh, losing to a different Nick each time. But uh, yeah, I've got a good amount of uh, practice with every army, a good amount of success. I was number three in the ITC last year, which I was quite proud of. And I'm currently number one in forces of the hive mind for the ITC rankings that are probably about to be very stagnant. All right, Nick, let's talk about your list. Why don't you tell everybody what's what's in it and sort of your thought process and why you put the things in it, and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys. Um, so I've been kind of playing a bit of Tyranids the past few weeks and stuff in the early outbreak of the Coronas when people were still going to events. And uh, the new ICC missions just came out, and they really kind of invigorated my love for the Tyranids because the new bonus points, the way secondary score, the the amount they reward board control, um, it really speaks to the play style of Nids. So I tried them out at a little tournament and saw a huge amount of success. Uh, So I just wanted to share with you the list and all that stuff and how it works. Uh, So there's a cracking battalion. We got Swarm Lord, a Brood Lord, two units of 18, 18 Gene Stealers, two units of 27 Hormigons. Then we got a Kronos Patrol, which is a Neurothrope, uh, a unit of 26 Termagants, um, six Hive Guard, and an Exegrin. And then finally, we have a mixed battalion of Gene Stealer Cult with a Twisted Helix Patriarch, uh, four Nimper Magus, and then just three units of 10 Brood Brothers. All right, awesome. So, real quick, if you just want to break down for us, I think the the Kraken Swarmlord trick is something that we all know about. It has roughly been unchanged for the past two years. Obviously, you can make the Kraken Genius Force go super fast, which lets you deploy them defensively and still get into the combat. But the Kronos detachment kind of fell out of favor for a solid year, where people used to take Hive Guard. Kind of, you know, I remember you took it to Warzone Atlanta a year ago. Uh, but then they weren't really seen since. What kind of changed to make you bring back the Kronos element? Uh, it's a couple things. Uh... The meta right now has a lot of Centurions 
in it through Raven Guard and whatnot, and there's absolutely no way for Gene or Tyranids in general to handle Centurions unless you shoot them. You can't just throw Gene Steelers at it, they'll kill you in Overwatch. Gaunts, there's no amount of Gaunts that can survive that much firepower, so you have to th solve it a different way. Um, so that's why I really felt like it was important to bring in the shooting. And then Kronos also got a little bit of buffs uh, through Psychic Awakening. Uh, they have the new spell, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's basically uh, sixes explode, sixes did explode, and it's not, it is modifiable. So you could take like your Exocrine, uh, who also got a new strat, which allows him to move and shoot and count as stationary. So your Exocrine can move, which was really his biggest issue problem is that if he was terrible if he had to move him, he's only good if he gets to stand still and it's hard because there's a lot of terrain 40k. So anyways, he can move and shoot, stand still. Protoss lets you reroll ones if you stand still. And if you stand still, then he gets plus one to hit, which will stack with your exploding sixes spell. So now he's exploding on fives to hit, hitting on threes, rerolling ones, basically hitting with plasma cannon shots from cross table. He's really good uh, killing sense that AP3 flat two damage. And then Hive Guard are just amazing. They've always has been for nids. Yeah, so the Hive Guard got a little bit cheaper in Chapter Approved, as I recall. Um, yeah, I'm sure that too. helps with their inclusion as well. Uh, have you found the Hive Guard? You've got the two shooting units there. Have you found it to be like one of them performs in any given game, or is one just always better than the other? Uh, usually, the Hive Guard always perform really well, and that's because they can always they can't be played around unless you kill them through indirect fire or something. Uh, the only game the Hive Guard really suck in is against Eldar with Night Spinners because they'll actually just kill me out really fast. But in every other game, the Hive Guard. Consistent strength, 8 minus 2, ignores cover, multiple damage. They'll just chew through intercessor bodies, rubric marines. They'll chip up centurions over time, kill vehicles. They're just a really great gun. And they ignore line of sight, so it lets me interact with parts of the board without having to commit entire units of gene stealers. The Exocrine is very hit and miss, but he's also cheap, which is why I like him. So in the games where he's good, he's great. He's unstoppable. He shoots for six turns, and your opponent just gets shot by a total of 72 plasma cannon shots. It's insane. So... That's armies like Centurions, which, like as I noted, are a bad match for nids. We'll cover that in depth in part two. But having just he's toughness eight, so bolters don't really hurt him. He's not a character, so they don't have to worry about the Raven Guard plus one to hit or wound. Um, he's just he's gonna take way too many bolter fire, way too much bolter fire to ever kill that way. So he's just gonna shoot all game against like Raven Guard or Iron Hands. He's gonna killing intercessors. He's gonna killing Centurions, and that's something they'd struggle with. In other games, he's just going to die turn one, like against Knights with Melta Cannons, Eldar. That sucks. But that's where I have to rely on the Hive Guard shooting in line of sight and the speed of the Kraken Steelers and the Hormer Guns and the board control that the army gives me to really win the game anyway. So it's okay that he goes down. He's only 150, like I said. Okay. Um, and you mentioned, you know, sometimes he just goes down early. Is that why you only have one? Uh, you know, a lot of the times people will double up on, uh, sorry, double up on like kind of the support tank pieces. Uh, is that just, you know, he'll be, either be great or he won't be a big loss? Yeah, exactly. That's that's precisely why we have one. So in the games, he's good. He's great. So obviously I want to have three. They're amazing. I'm sure three Centurions would beat all the Raven Guard Suns way faster than one would. Or three Exocrine rather. But I still managed to win those games with one. And the games where three of them are not good, like against Eldar or those Melted Knights or whatever, um... I'm not playing with 450 points down. So that one is a bit of a tech piece just to help him that matchup. Okay, that makes a lot of sense then. Uh, talk to me about the Gene Stir Cult attachment. Um, I see you've got the Magus for Forum Dumper, so obviously you feel like Vect is necessary in the list. Uh, it's a pretty good tool to have access to. Uh, overall, though, does the Gene Stir Cult attachment, does it contribute to anything else, or is it just cheap command points and you have Vect? 
I'm glad you asked because it looks like that attachment doesn't really do anything besides get me back, but it actually opens up a ton of options for my list. So the reason the Gene Circle is there primarily is actually to stop Raven Guard and to stop Thousand Sons. Um, they have blips, which so if I can choose, usually I just reserve everything in that attachment and just deal with it later, but I can choose to deploy it in the blip system. So what I do is the blips have a rule your enemy can't move within nine inches of you while blips on the table. And if you're going second, the blips reveal at the end of your opponent's move phase, so after he's done all his moves. So basically, you can keep anybody nine inches away from your employment zone through their first movement phase. So I can go for, if I'm going second against these armies, I can infiltrate like six aggressors on my front lines, pre-game move them, then walk them forward, and then shoot into my deployment zone. No matter how deep it is, I'm going to get shot. But if I have this buffer, now I can use the depth to keep me safe. Similar to Rubric Marines, you can infiltrate them now, move them, warp time them, unload. I don't want any of that. So this is a great way to circumnavigate those crazy strikes that you have, the new ITC missions where there's attacker defender style, and you know you're going first or you know you're going second. Um, so what I do with the five blips, I have five units. I generally spend one CP before the game starts when I know I need to use this defense tactic to put out three more blips. So I'll have eight total. And then... Um, with those eight blips, I pretty much just can't... Uh, sorry. There's a strat to put three units back in reserve. That's where I was going with this. So that way I can put my three brood brothers... I can deploy them and then put my three brood brothers back in reserve. So I still have eight blips, but only two units on the table. Um, and then the two of the, those are characters. So I can probably finagle them so they're not the closest thing, even where they have to deploy. And then I can not really give up anything. My opponent's just really far away from my lines on turn one. Um, the last thing the army, the, the GTR cult detachment does is more subtle. It's, uh, it opens up a lot of secondaries for me. So all that deep strikes, it's a lot of small units that aren't really worth screening against. So it lets me get behind enemy lines or recon, um, double recon or double behind enemy lines often. And it comes in layers. So I can do like screen of brood brothers in the corner, kind of inconvenient. Then another layer of brood brothers in the corner, kind of inconvenient. Then a character. It's going to take you like three turns to chew through all that crap. And you don't want to deal with that. That's like not a threat at all. It's just scoring me four points. So they're really good at just getting me secondaries without committing anything. Uh, so I'm going to wind it back to that Kronos detachment real quick. Uh, both of the shooting units you have are 36 inch range. And then the Kraken Gene Stealers, they typically move like, what, 32 to 34 inches and then they get a charge? Yeah, if I want to go all out with them. Okay. Do you ever worry about people just straight up outranging you? Like if they get a hammer and anvil deployment, um, is that like... But how do you get around that? It, it usually happens against, like, Eldar mostly. Um, even Tau pretty much live in the 36 inch range bracket, and that's where I kill you. Uh, a guard, I guess, could do it, but guard, I will just charge. Uh, they usually hit a lot of guys. Um, against Eldar, which is the match where this really happens, uh, I just try to swarm the table. This is where all the bodies in my list come in. If you notice, there's two units of 27 Hormagons, a unit of 26 Termagons, four, almost 36 Gene Stealers. So what are we at? 36 plus 54 is 90, then 26 Termagons, 116, then 30 Brew Brothers. That's 146 guys with the carries, like 150 models. Eldar is going to take so long to kill that. Like, that's that's multiple turns, like four or five turns at least. On those turns, it's really easy for to max on my secondaries. Recon, uh, behind enemy lines, Sappers, that's a secondary I take a lot. Um, and then Eldar usually give up, like, Big Game Hunter. 
And my army's exceptional at getting headhunter with gene stealers, just going and killing farseers and warlocks and whatnot. Um, so I can usually get up a kill secondary against Delmar. And then because I'm a board control army, I'm just going to hold, hold more, and bonus over and over again. So that's pretty much the plan against the armies that arrange me. It's, it's not Eldar specific, but that's an army that does it. It's, uh, it's really just existed them over and over and over and focus on board control. Okay. Well, I really like that. That definitely makes sense. Um, all right. We haven't talked about the Kraken yet. I do feel like we have to, we have to give them some mention. Um, we gotta break it down. We we gotta break down the Kraken. So real quick, give me a summary. How fast do the Kraken Steelers go? Kraken Steelers are so fast. Like you think you know speed, then you then you play genes or you play tyrants. So basically, the way that works, they move eight, and they advance three, six, pick the highest because that's what Kraken does. So typically, you'll get a five or six. Let's just assume you get a six for the sake of maximizing it. Uh, but really, let's actually let's assume you get a five just to be average about it. So that's thirteen. You can then spend a CP if you want, opportunistic advance, to double that number. So your 5 counts as a 10, so you're moving 18 inches in the movement phase. Then you have the ability to use Swarm Lord's Hive Commander rule in the shooting phase, um, which lets you move a unit of Steelers again, or move a unit of Kraken again. Um, so we'll move again, and we'll advance, let's say we'll roll 5 again. That's another 13 inches. You can't double it in this phase anymore because uh, they, op- they FAQ'd it. Used to be able to double that, so you go 18, then 18, or 20, then 20. But uh, say Levy. So 34 is the most you can get. In this example, we're going 32. Two inches off of max is average. Um, then they get to deliver a charge. So let's say we're all seven. That's 39 inches. But it doesn't just stop there a lot of the time. So you can pile in and fight. Steelers hit really, really hard in close combat. Four attacks each, potentially hitting on twos, rending, uh, or really only ones to hit, depending on what they feel like. Um, they have another rule. If they kill a unit in combat and then there's no enemies within three inches, like for example, there's no one directly in front of them to consolidate into, they can spend a CP to overrun, which is a strategy that lets them move in the, in the combat phase after they've killed something. So then you get a full move plus advance, so another 13, 14 inches. You can use that to go backwards behind terrain, uh, back to safety out of this out of counter charge range of your opponent uh, to really do some hit and run plays. Or you can use that to go forward, and this is a really d- janky play. Uh, you move 13, 14 inches forward, get to like a bunch of vehicles. Now you can't engage them, you must remain one inch away. So you're just staying in front of his army. Your opponent's like, What the hell are you doing? Why are your stealers just standing here? And then you pop the three CP strategy with journal and search to fight again. So even though you're not engaged, it's not like a space marine one, a tier one's older, so it's got benefits and hindrances as old codexes do. Um, so as long as they made, uh, as long as they're eligible to fight, and they are because they made accessible charge in the previous charge phase, they can activate again. So they pile in three inches uh, towards new sending models, of course, fight whatever they can that they declare charge against. So you could manipulate what you declare charges against to wrap stuff by not declaring it, or you could um, declare everything and just do this maneuver and kill like 40 models in one turn. Um, so then you fight again, whatever you fight, and then you consolidate again. Pull off whatever reps you want, touch whatever Lehman Russes you want, and happy day. That's Kraken in a nutshell. Okay. Um, and obviously that fallback in charge means that if you do get those wraps off, you know, your opponent's not stopping you from going and oh, getting yeah. where you want to go. I forgot the second half of Kraken. It's so amazing, it's just but like, as good. in this army, it just doesn't come out much. But yeah, you can <laughs> fall back in charge. So like if someone does tag you, you can see there's like a wave sapper or something really annoying, a riptide, maybe you don't kill it in one turn, you just leave and then go charge something else. It's great. Mm-hmm. Awesome, I love that. Okay, so your two Gene Steeler units are 18 and 18. Um, I see a lot of people do 16 and 20 whenever they've got that 
uh, not multiple of 20 number, just to get the extra acid mod in there. Is there any reason you did 18 twice? Yeah, so it's very much a preference choice, um, I think. Uh, so basically, every four models in your Gene Circle unit, you had a free acid mod, and acid mod is basically just a power sword instead of a rending claw. Um, so with 16 and 20, you get four acid mods and five acid mods. With 18 and 18, you only get four acid mods and, eight, and four acid mods. So I'm shortchanging myself a power sword, basically. Um, the reason I do it this way is because I don't want to prioritize one squad of stealers as more threatening or more valuable as a target, or I don't want... If, once, if they focus on one, I want the second squad to be just as effective. I don't want my, want my second squad to be uh, 16 guys, not 18 for purposes like fighting again or maximizing my unit stringiness with uh, chaining back to Synapse or Hive Commander or whatever. It, like I said, it's really negligible. It's a power sword versus slightly more balanced units. Like, who cares? Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um... So let's talk back to the ITC missions. Um, we've talked a little bit about how the new secondaries and bonuses have kind of made you pivot back to Tyranids. Uh, what about the deploy first, go first, uh, the absence of the seize role? Has that made a big difference for the Tyranids? Such a big difference. So I played Tyranids for pretty much all, well, since 5th edition really, but all of 8th I've been on and off the nids. And for most of 8th it was alternating deployment, then it became a mix of alternating and full deploy. But in all those formats, barring Pro Table, to, or no, Pro Table had Cs. In all those formats they had Cs. So what this meant is that if you were going first as this tier new player, you weren't necessarily going first, there was a chance you were going second. So if I deployed balls to the wall, all gene stealers on the line, we're going first to charge hand boys, and then I got seized on, uh, all my stealers are going to die turn one, I'm going to lose the game. So you have to deploy conservatively, even if you're going first. So your first turn alpha strikes and whatever aren't nearly as strong. That's no longer a thing. You get to deploy in the line if you know you're going first and you're good to go. Kill wherever you want. Your opponent has to cower in the corner, otherwise he's going to get charged turn one by 40 gene stealers. That's really good. Um, and then, of course, going second, that's not as good. But one of the nice things about ITC is the hold more and kill more are always determined at the end of the battle round. So... Even if you're going second, you've lost your board control, that kind of thing. You're so fast with large units of OPSEC, 30 guns here, 20 gene stealers here, that you can pretty much always, with double move through swarm order or double move through metabolic overdrive, which is another strat that lets you in the movement phase, roll dice for every model unit. On a one, you take a mortal, but whatever. 30 guys, you lose five, who cares? Um, you double move them. So the way that works is you could double that advance roll with the same opportunistic advance stratagem. Move... 27 Hormigons, 8 inches base, 3d6 pick the highs for a 5, double it for 18. Since as you're moving in the same phase, that advance roll sticks, so that 18 is going to apply twice. You're going to go 36 inches. You've just taken hold more in the bonus point away from the opponent going second. You've just moved 30 models that are OPSEC across the table. And then you still have Swarm Lord available. So you can either move them 40 inches, or sorry, uh, 50 inches, or... Just move your stealers twice and have them charge something. You can't charge or shoot after you use that stratagem, but we're just using it to move. We're move blocking the enemy army so they can't really move in their turn, and we've taken the board. It's You just can just keep cycling one unit at a time. You've got five units there. You can just keep that up all game, and you've won while your hive guard just sit there and shoot for a kill a unit. So that's going second. Um, the last thing for new ITC is that the bonus points are a lot easier. Uh, they're always... They're like hold three objectives where they used to be hold the one that your opponent placed far away. They're like hold two objectives in the middle of the table, not two objectives in the far corners. It's just naturally a lot easier for a board control base list, especially a fast one with fast obsec. So I find most of my games I have bonus point five or six turns out of six turns. 
Wow, that's pretty high right there. That is a lot of uh, extra points that maybe we weren't getting before. Um, do the Hormagants help a lot with that? Um, we haven't really talked on the difference between the Hormagants and the regular Gants. Uh, I know they're one point more expensive. What do you get for that point? Yeah, so a lot of players, I think, gravitate towards Termagants because at the end of the day, a Gaunt is just a body. That's its primary purpose in life is to just exist somewhere. So you want the cheapest guy ever to exist there. Um, so paying that extra point often isn't wise if it's just going to die anyway. But the Hormagon gets you a lot for one point. It gets you one more attack. Uh, gets you real ones to hit. Uh, you're straight threes and you hit on fours. This isn't like you're breaking ground here. But enough attacks kind of add up. And then it gets this is where it actually comes. It gets you two more inches of movement. And remember, the purpose of these units is to be flung across the table. So two inches, if you're doubling, is four inches. And if you're tripling it, which I just discussed, six inches of movement, that's quite significant. And then also they have a nifty rule. Uh, if they are fighting, they can pile in six and consolidate six. So if you don't want to go through all the ordeals of metabolic overdrive, that's a bunch of CP, uh, it's one. But if you don't want to do it, you also lose four or five Hormagons. Maybe you don't want to. Um, maybe you just want to charge something to wrap it or use some cool consolidation tricks. You can almost go just as far with your assault phase. So you move in advance 14, cast Onslaught on them with your Broodlord. Broodlord probably is he's going to be taking Resonance Barb for plus one to cast and cast an extra power. So you can cast Onslaught, which goes off on a five. You have a CP reroll if you need. Then your Hormagons hopefully pass this five Psychic Test, make their charge, and then you can swing them all kinds of crazy directions. It's 30 guys. That's 90 inches of coherency. So you can make weird tails, and the back of your tails can go 12 inches very loosely towards the nearest enemy model, which can get them all kinds of cool places, like different objectives, touching different vehicles, move blocking certain units, all kinds of stuff. So the one point doesn't do anything in particular. It's really just it opens up opportunities for more play. So a, a termagant is very basic. It is a body that exists for four points. There's nothing cool about it. So it's a little bit of extra movement, a little bit of extra consolidate jank. The fact that I can maybe kill a unit if I need to, like a unit of crappy cultists or something in close combat, all that for me adds up to being worth it a point at least a couple times. All right, so the overall list here, um, I really like the direction you've gone. I'm really happy to see Tyranids back in the meta. Um, is this the final version of the list? Are there any tweaks that you've considered after playtesting? Any units that you've cut from the list before? There's a million things I want to tweak with this list. Uh, I keep not tweaking it because every time I change it, it gets worse, I think, uh, even though I'm not totally satisfied with it. The thing that bothers me the most is this Kronos Patrol. Um, patrols just feel bad. It's like an entire detachment that doesn't give any CP, and I took four units. How did this happen? But the problem is the units I want are legitimately in different uh, places. Like... Dexcrin's a heavy, the Hive Guard uh, Elite, and I really like Kronos Gaunts because they're a frontline unit that can shut down psychic powers. So um, I don't really know what to do with that. I could try to find 66 points and put in some Rippers or 80 points and put in some Gaunts. It's just hard um, to find those points. I've considered Tyranid Warriors because you can go down a rabbit hole, uh, take a Tyranid Prime, which gives them plus one to hit, so then they're hitting on five, or they're hitting on threes, but they're... When you cast Exploding Six Power, just like the x they'll be exploding on fives and they have a lot of shots. They got a, new, a lot of new strats in Psychic Awakening, minus one damage, and ignore his AP 1 and 2. I tried them once, and I was still just disappointed by their damage output, but they were really durable, so I might re-explore those. Uh, I th but yeah, I think the direction list really wants to go is don't lose anything 
but go to Triple Battalion. But that's not – you can't just go to Triple Battalion. It's not just the 66 points for Rivers for a Battalion. You actually have to make up that extra HQ too. So it's really like 150 points, and that's a lot. Uh, so that's where I'm stuck currently. But I like the list overall. It plays amazingly. It feels great. I think it'll struggle a little bit versus Tau from being honest. That's the only limitation, and we'll talk about that a lot in part two. But I really love the way it plays. I think it's a great army. Okay. So, yeah, without diving too much into the specific matchups, you know, like uh, Tau, like you mentioned, um, what are the, you know, obviously you've got a lot of board control. A lot of people can't handle that. You have some great melee. You can really pin people in while you run up the scoreboard and then chip damage on them with some relatively efficient compact shooting. Uh, what are the scenarios that the army struggles with? Uh, you mentioned before that you kind of prefer to go first, get a, a nice handle on the board control. What are the kind of armies that, maybe just like the style armies, that you're a little more worried about? Um, basically, the fly keyword is tough. A lot of how this army likes to stay alive, if it can, is by wrapping stuff in close combat. So wrapping or tri-pointing, if you're not familiar, is how Tyranids live and die. It's their bread and butter. Basically, they pile in and consolidate in such a way that the enemy can't physically move in his movement phase. So even though you can, of course, fall back normally, fall back is still a move. So you can't move through models unless you have fly. So you can trap models in place, basically, to prevent them from moving. Um, fly, of course, goes right over my model, so they can fall back. To that end, I would consider a Toxicron, even. They have that new strat to from Psychic Wing, which lets them, on a 3-up, pin an enemy in place, preventing it from falling back. You actually get to add one to that result if the unit you're preventing from falling back is infantry. Um, so, armies that have mass fly and shooting, like Town, Eldar, which we'll talk about later, are definitely the worst matchups, in my opinion. Um... Other armies that teleport, like Grey Knights or Necrons with Veil of Darkness, they can be tough too. Basically, if I can't trap you in close combat, it gets hairy. Um, or, because then I, I just have to rely on my bodies to survive. Uh, I typically don't table my opponents. I don't do that much damage over the course of the game. I do like enough to win skirmishes to score points, but I don't end up... I, I end up usually being killed by the end of the game. My opponent has, like, some models left. Now, that's not always the case. Of, I have more or less tabled my opponent here and there with this list. But against the stronger armies out there, or at least the tougher ones like Iron Hands and whatnot, I'm definitely scraping the last of my models at the end of the game, but I'm running up that scoreboard. So that's the approach in some matches. Okay, I love that. Okay, well that, that leads me to a question, Nick. But before I ask it, uh, let's take a quick break to get a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. All right, and that was our sponsors. Nick, uh, so here's the question I have for you. Looking at your list, and, and bear with me, I'm not an expert on NIDs, but it doesn't look like a particularly durable list past the f fact that it has a lot of bodies. Now, do you have any tricks or tips for people? to? Because your list needs to survive for six turns to win, I feel like, or at least five, right? Like if you get tabled um, early, obviously you can't score all those points. You need to score with all the board control that you have. Right. That's a great question, John. So can can you maybe describe how the list 
survives. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked because on the face value, you're right. I don't even bother with a Malanthrope. There's a lot of I, I am a t- horde of toughness three six up save models or toughness four five save models in a day and age where there's hurricane bolters on tons of dudes or things like that. So um, um, you have to use your speed and the fact that you are a horde. Uh, you have large units basically to really keep yourself alive. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's a trick that I think Eric Lathiris, who we've had in the podcast in the past, has talked about. He is a coach over on Art of War, so um, he can go more in depth there. But it's a trick with hordes. If you take a 30-man unit of guns and you condense it into a small ball, this is what not to do. You condense it into a small ball, and your opponent has range and line of sight to it with a variety of different weapons, you're just going to shoot it until it dies. Now, if you take that same unit of 30 Hormigons and stretch it to 30 inches across the table onto multiple objectives, doing what it wants to do naturally, what it also does is it means different units only have line of sight and range to certain parts of your units. Now, everything in your opponent's army will probably see you because you're across the entire table, but they'll only have line of sight to certain things because there's angles like buildings or line of sight and ranges that always get in the way. So he's going to fire his first unit, and let's if it's coming from angle A, well, if there's no more shots coming from angle A, then pull the casualties from angle C. And then the guys who are shooting through angle C won't be in range next time. And he's shot himself out of range that way. So you can kind of pre- overly do this process, which causes weird target priority for your opponent. Because let's say there's a unit of three aggressors that pump out like 30 shots. They could kill probably 20 or so gaunts, 24 or so gaunts after they f- miss a few hit rolls, fail a few wound rolls, or I pass a couple six-up saves. So if they're not going to one-shot my unit and I pull 20-something guys from the front end and there's four or five guys left at the back end, which are now out of line of sight and out of range, nothing in his army can finish that four. I denied my opponent kill a unit that turn, and I still have a unit that's four guys in obsec, still capable of moving 40 inches in the game if I wanted to, well, unlike literally at my will. Um that's a huge problem because that's a point I just denied him kill, probably a point another point I denied him kill more, and then later on that unit's gonna run up, get hold more, and get a bonus point and, and get two more points for me. So stuff like that. Also, when I trade my stuff like my gene stealers, I, I let them die in spades. I just trade them for pieces. It's like chess. It's like my rook takes your queen, then my rook dies, but it's okay because I got your queen. Extreme example. That's basically the purpose of the gene stealers. That or they're overrunning back behind terrain. And if that's enough to keep them safe, I'll do that. Okay, I like that a lot. Okay, so you're you're using you're using both movement and speed, uh, just speed, and then positioning. Yeah, and the the casualty pulling rules also generates a lot of favors. So the way it works, guys, is basically in order to to shoot a unit, you have to have range and line of sight to the same model. So a lot of times you can. Pull the guys directly in line of sight of whatever is about to shoot you. They'll have line of sight to something in your unit. You didn't spread out across the whole table, but they won't have range to the models that they can see. So it, it defeats the whole purpose. So there's a lot of cool shenanigans you can do with how you play pull casualties. That's how the unit wants to function anyway. The army is like a giant little wave that stands exactly where it needs to across four different points on the table and strung all the way back to your home base for synapse and whatnot. So it's really easy to pull little points of that tentacle, tendril, squid monster of Gaunts to keep yourself safe. Okay, last dumb question. I assume you have a way to be immune to Yeah, so Synapse is a rule that Tyranids have. Uh, It's kind of the only reason they work as an army. Basically, uh, if if you have Synapse creatures, a Swarm Lord's a Synapse creature, you give Synapse an 18-inch aura, 
And then the Broodlord and the Nerdthrope are sent up to creatures. And their characters under 10 wounds, they can't really be shot, generally speaking. Um, so they have 12-inch auras around them that are fearless auras. So as long as one model from a unit is within 12 of those guys or 18 as one lord, I'm fearless. Um, if I've lost all my synapse creatures, it means I've lost my characters, which means that my army's probably already dead or I've messed up versus Ravenguard. Um, but generally, I'll have a fearless on game. And that's what I mean. You'll have to stream bats to synapse ranges and stuff. Okay, that makes a sense, sense a lot how you kind of leverage the weird size of your units to get some durability out of it. Um, the durability of Nids kind of feels like it's gone up just in the absence of Space Marines, or at least them not being as popular as they were before. Uh, just a quick take, do you think the ITC mission change or the Space Marine FAQ was better for the Tyranids? Uh, I think both. Uh, definitely the ITC mission change was way more prominent. Tyranids were able to beat Space Marines before, uh, and a lot of what a lot of what changed doesn't really matter to Nids too much. There's a little bit of stuff, so I'll get into that in a second. But the fact that you have new secondaries like Sappers, which are amazing for Nids, even though they're horrible for every other army in the game, um, it's easier to get secondaries maxed out quickly, so which allows you to get tabled in those later turns and still have already maxed your secondaries. Like you can get four recon points by turn three, just guaranteed. Uh, which is something where the Deep Strikers come in because now they show up turn two, then they show up turn three. I stagger that, boom, I'm done with recon. Same with behind me line, same idea. Before, you couldn't possibly get it before turn five maxed out. Now you max it out by turn three at the end of your player turn, so it's guaranteed. So basically, I lock out my 12 secondaries guaranteed no matter who my opponent is, which is something that didn't exist before. And then um, with the bonus point being more readily available for such a fast board control army, it doesn't really matter if I get table in a lot of games. And then uh, in the the Space Marine FAQ, the thing that really changed is basically the meta shift going from a lot of artillery everywhere to almost no artillery. And that's the change of Devastator Doctrine because the artillery that has to go to Tactical Doctrine kind of sucks. Like, it doesn't really do that much damage. Um, so, And it's not synergistic with the Tactical Doctrine, which will have to be in for probably two turns the game or one if you're trying to go to assault it's not synergistic with that either um so they've really it's not intuitive to your strategy at all it's not that powerful without that extra ap so you're seeing less thunderfire cannons less artillery lets me hide and also no tremor shells please <laughs> is tremor shells why you have that uh that little vect attachment in there Honestly, I think in a lot of cases, I'd probably just let them spend their CP on it. If they're spending a CP on one Tremor Shell, I'll just move my other unit of stealers. And if they're spending CP on double Tremor Shell, Space Marines can't really afford to spend three CP a turn. I'd kind of rather than be strength four versus strength five when they're shooting me. This is, of course, unless I'm lining up a huge Gene Stealer play, but uh, I don't necessarily always have to do that. It's more just the threat of it will do a lot for me. Uh, Vect is actually there a lot for Orcs. You have to either be able to stop... Mordaka on Luna shooting Gene Stealers on my turn one, or you have to stop uh, a key green tide. Uh, it's got other uses, like against Grey Knights, you can stop Cybolt ammo, which will keep your Hive Guard alive for a turn, which lets you then counter shoot them with the Hive Guard and the Exocrine, or at least the Hive Guard if you're shooting out of line of sight. Then you can get your Kronos guys in range. That's why we have the Kronos guns and stuff and start to make some moves. I'll get all that more into matchup specific stuff later, but it's uh, Vect is not there for Tremor Shells, but. It's there for all the kind of things I don't think about. Uh, I hadn't thought about it, but I suppose the doctrine change makes Hiveguard a lot better because um, don't you have a strat that ignores up to AP minus two or something on them? 
Yeah, you can buy them in adaptation. Um, basically, an adaptation is in place of a warlord trait, and then you have a strat to buy one more if you want. So generally speaking, I take the adaptation for Ignore's AP 1 and 2 on the Hive Guard. Uh, sometimes I'll take the adaptation for a 5-up invul on my Exocrine and doubling its wound count for the purposes of its degradation table. Um, but yeah, ignoring AP minus 1 and 2, it's really nice because things like Thunderfires were RAP 2, or they used to be, and on Terminal they still are. And it's uh, Scorpiuses, which were uh, the prime nemesis of the Hive Guard. Uh, they're only AP 2 past turn 1 now, so you can kind of tank them a lot better now as well. Alright, that all makes sense. Um... So yeah, you mentioned what five up invul on the Exocrine. Um, I actually forgot about that one. To be honest with you, I always forget that that's an Noob. option. What kind of tiered best tiered player, best high mind forces of the evil are you? This is why I won best gene stealer cult this year. Well, I mean, I'm the one that told you to take an Exocrine, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Don't eat. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, let me see here. Um, I think we've talked. John and I like each other, guys. In case you couldn't tell. Oh, absolutely. I think he likes both of the Giants here, but I won't speak for that. Um, I think really... I wasn't talking about you. Oh, <laughs> ouch. All right. Uh, I think literally the only unit that we haven't mentioned in your army yet is the Broodlord. Uh, how often does that plus one to hit actually come up? Because I find that like, if I'm ever actually getting a plus one to hit from the Broodlord to the Gene Stealers, like, it just, the game's already over. Like, it just doesn't matter. I would, I would say in about half of my games I use it, maybe a third. I definitely never really go out of my way for it. I, I don't care about it that much. But against armies like Possess, which kind of the brawl happens in the middle of the table, it's not hard for the Broodlord to get to the middle table. I'll, I'll fall into it there. Um, there's some armies where you end up fighting combat like Orcs. Those are those are games where you actually make use of it. So I'll say sometimes. It's not unheard of. It's just not like every game. Mm-hmm. Against Iron Hands, I did it. Their army just bulldoze in the middle i charge it with stealers in the middle there. <laughs> have you ever used the swarm lord to launch the brood lord uh i did i did i did just the other day to practice game against mark um yeah there's a lot of cool swarm plays because once the stealers go once the hormigons go and a lot of times they're fast on their own like they're they can move 20 inches if they want no problem so uh, they don't necessarily need swarm lord to go where they're going um which opens up opportunity for Swarm Lord to do cool Swarm Lord plays like Swarm Lording the Broodlord, or Swarm Lording himself. Um, but yeah, I can do stuff like that. He makes some cool little missiles. The Broodlord also is one of my favorite kind of guys for the feeder tendril stratum. Stratum for Gene Stealer or for uh, Tyranids. After you have a Gene Stealer or a Broodlord or a Lictor kill an enemy character, uh, you spend a CP to gain D3 CP. So oftentimes I'll kind of get my army down to 1 CP. And 1 CP is an awkward spot for Tyranids. There's not much you can do with it. You can double an advance roll, you can use the feeder tendril strat, or you can move three times and not do anything after, which at that point in the game you don't really want to do that. Um, so generally, uh, I'll just turn that 1cp, and I'll use that 1cp to keep hitting a character, and then usually you roll a 2 or higher on your d3. I mean, hopefully you do. So if you get 2, you spend the 1 to go down to 0, you gain 2, you're at 2. You spend one to then overrun backwards behind the wall. Next turn, run out, kill a character, eat its brains, keep the overrun cycle going as long as you can. It's a fun little game I played. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am going to correct you real quick. The Broodlord cannot use uh, that stratagem. What stratagem? The feeder tendrils. Why? Uh, because it's Gene Stealer the unit, not Gene Stealer the keyword. Oh. Yeah. 
Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Way to just call me out of my own podcast. I'm sorry, guys. Apparently, I've been cheating. It's too bad I I went undefeated in the tournament. Um, but uh, um, sorry, I did not catch that. Gene Steele was a unit or a keyword, not Gene Steele unit. This is so bad. Yeah, that's alright. I'm sure we can edit that out to make you look nice. <laughs> uh, it happens to the best of us, guys. I'm sorry. Can we edit this? <laughs> John's just not here. Okay. All right. I mean, we could edit it, but we probably won't. Let's be honest. All right. All right. You know, I think actually, just as a quick aside, uh, the game is complex enough that I think it's fair to point out that even the most accomplished, experienced players make mistakes. Like I'm sure there's things John's made mistakes on. Certainly, mistakes I can I can think of innumerable mistakes that I make in any given tournament uh, just by not understanding because there's so many complex interactions. So the important thing is in podcasts like this and discussions like this is we can find those and, you know, help get more people on the, uh, the right way of playing. I'm sure. Right yeah. Path, I'm not sure I'm not the only person who's made that mistake. Oh God, no, I can... Keyword versus unit name. Well, yes, there is a way to tell. It's just one of those things you never think about. So, um, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I, I know that because I've made the same mistake myself. So, no shade being thrown here. I'm just going to apologize to the world. Please don't crucify me. And also, I've done my due diligence to share a common misconception away now. Thank you to Art of War team and John Lennon for dispelling <laughs> the mystery that is Feeder Tendrils and the Brute Lord. <laughs> All right. Um, I think that I think that covers just about everything that I had about the list. Um, I really like it. I really like the way uh, you're describing how it plays. Um, I've been favoring a little more shooty heavy of a tier in a Jinxler cult list, but I gotta say I miss having that many bodies on the table. Yeah, so I, I'm glad you brought that up. I played not this version, and I actually this version is the, my latest version. I played in two tournaments so far with a total record of 8-1, and one, uh, getting first place and second place between the two. And neither of those two lists were the same, and this is the third version of the list. So the first version of the list had basically 30 less bodies. I didn't have that second squad of Hormigons. Um, I left that tournament feeling that I really wanted 30 more bodies. So the next version is a lot closer to what you're seeing now, but basically it was one Hormigon squad and two Termigon squads. And I left that tournament saying if I was a little faster, I probably would have won that game against the Eldar army. Hence the second Hormigon squad upgrading over Termigon squad. So you are seeing this literally evolve into... Just a, a split variation of yours, I guess. You have all the rich runners from our villains, and I have way more bodies, too. You shoot your problems away, and I exist my problems away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I can definitely see where that's advantageous in some of the matchups where going second really hurts. Because uh, sometimes you just can't get away from the guns. Yeah, exactly. Especially in the new ITC deployments, like you can get stuck going second in like Dawn of War, which it's unlikely, but, you know, yeah. it happens. And... That sucks. That's where things like the blips really matter. And uh, just the more bodies helps, like you said. All right. I like it. I guess that's that's just one last thing I'll, I'll point out is the uh, the list is more nuanced and complex than it looks like on paper. Because it looks like you kind of just walk everything forward and exist and then win the game. But like you said, there's a lot of tricks in using terrain and spreading your army out and existing in the right way i guess which we'll cover in episode two does that make sense yeah in, in most games most of my army actually just hangs out in my deployment zone trying to be really far back out of range of whatever guns the opponent has 
Um, and then I'll usually send one squad in at a time. If it's Steelers, it'll try to kill something and stand like right in front of the enemy army, trying to hopefully move block them so that they can't come closer to get in range or get onto multiple objectives. While simultaneously, the Steelers squad's probably on a bonus point objective, getting me hold more, that kind of thing. And then when they're going to inevitably die because they're standing right in front of the opponent's army, I have four or five more squads just, just rinse and repeat that. Boom, 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 boom. So it's, it's very calculated at dying, is the way I phrase it. Uh, so if you're trying to outrange people, do you actually prefer some of the longer deployments when you're going second? Something like Hammer and Anvil? Yeah, I, I never really ever try to get stuck in Donna when going first or second. Or going second. I want to, um, yeah, get Hammer and Anvil, or Vanguard at least, but really try to lengthen that deployment going second as much as possible and move block them while shooting them and using my range advantage because a lot of the huge threats in the game right now uh, just don't have that long of range. So if we take Centurions, which are an enormous threat to Tyrions, 24, 27 inch range. And then uh, 31, if you count their move, that's as far as they possibly can shoot. But I screen and hive guard 36, and they can move and shoot six. Um, so stuff like that is a big interaction for me. Uh, things like Noise Marines, which aren't really common, but if you, and Rubric Marines, which are getting more common, they can pump out a lot of firepower, but Again, 24 inch range, so I shoot 36. It, uh, just if you go down with what's capable of killing this army, it's really that 24 inch range bracket stuff. So being able to outrage that is huge. I just I want to say really quick that I'm really glad that you sort of pointed out that you send one unit like a missile in every turn to give you the board control because the units are so big, right? And they cover so much ground. You only need to send one unit forward to give you your board control, your bonus point, because they're obsec, right? So, um, and so you're you're actually playing a really patient, really conservative game where you're sort of giving up, you know, one of the, you have like five of those blobs, you're giving up one a turn, and that, that blob's whole existence is just to score you, you know, hold more bonus point, um, and that's that's about it, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly it, John. If I did throw everything out there, again, I'm, I'm not tough. Like I said, if someone just hit me with their army over and over and over again, they'll have enough bolts to kill me over two turns, let alone six. So that's where I was trying to send when I was talking about those technical tactics. If I if four of my five units are hiding in the backfield, does your range or line of sight or a combination of both, and I have one unit spread out across the whole table and all kinds of weird formation tentacles. That's where I can start pulling casualties all over the place on the one unit so that you can't see my other four, you can't range my other four, whatever it might be. And the one unit you're pulling yourself out of range of. If I live with like three or four guns that turn, I've slowed your game plan down tremendously. You've missed killing unit for that entire turn because there's not even like trash in my army. It's all in reserve for like mortars to pick up or a wyvern or something. Yeah, they might annoy some gene stealers in the very back to might kill like four or five of them. But that's not killing unit. So if I can survive the turn with like four or five guys not dead that you can't you can no longer range or draw line of sight to with anyone who has yet to be fired with that's where that battle round goes i killed with hive guard you didn't kill anything so i killed more with my hive guard i held with the gaunts move block your army so you couldn't get onto more objectives and held more because i'm still on like two or three and bonus because the gaunts were on every single objective so that's how you can kind of a lot of my games, I, I literally go down entire, like, I trade thirty of genes, I trade twenty gene stores for five intercessors all the time. It's horrible value, but it's five to one on the scoreboard, and I can just make that trade three times or something, and you're just not going to come up, come back from fifteen to three with three turns left. So that's pretty much how the army functions. 
Yeah, so it's the ultimate play the mission army, right? Like that's Yeah, it's it's like the opposite of old school denial. Instead of focusing on pure denial of secondaries and dying kills altogether, <laughs> it's focusing on just outpacing you on the scoreboard. Like I'm going to score five points. I don't care if you get one. That's five to one. And that's you can kill whatever units you like. I give up Max Reaper. Everything else is hard. You're not gonna get you're not even gonna get your maneuver secondary. And I'm gonna max because I just have to stand places. Cool. Uh, John, did you have any other questions? Uh, no, I like it a lot. Um, I just kind of liked uh, what you emphasized uh, you know, in that last minute or two, where you talked about how when you only send one unit forward to kind of clog people up with those large units and then deny them from getting forward. Uh, I just like that idea that you survive by not letting your opponent play with you. Like, you, you know, it's, it, it's not like you're durable. You're not. Um, if you ever just get hit, you're going to go down. Uh, but, you know... If they run out of things in range to shoot, well, a lot of their army is wasted every turn. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. I think that's really cool. Well, okay, I think that was a really good first discussion uh, about the strategy of the list, and I guess in episode, man, you guys forgot a whole question. I only know that because I'm an actual co-host of this show, but you guys are letting me down. Can my list play in other formats? Come on, guys. Oh, okay. Hey, I mean. What other formats are there? Adepticon isn't happening for another year. There's Nova, there's ETC, sorry, WTC, there's Joe's Basement, there's all kinds of formats. Okay, well, how does your list perform in other formats, Nick? Uh, to be honest, I haven't played the other formats. But um, I will say, <laughs> I think I'd do great in Nova. Nova is very similar to ITC, where that if you pick progressives and you just stand, you can throw your army into the trash can and crush progressives and come back strong. Uh, also going second, um, kind of like the same philosophy my Gene Circle that I took to Nova used last year, I can go second and keep those Brood Brothers in for lying and wait the entire game, but just like hiding them in a corner until turn five, putting them back up, spending two CP to put them within three inches of an enemy. I can basically make it so that my opponent has like no end of game points. Similarly, if I can just keep my Gaunts alive towards till turn six, then move advance one more, triple move, you know what tricks. Um, you scored zero for endgame. So it's really, it can abuse the scoreboard very similarly to how it abuses the scoreboard in ITC missions in Nova format. ETC, also, it's probably, they have a lot of their points tied up into Eternal War, which is usually some sort of objectives, which I'm naturally good at. And then Maelstrom, which you can construct your deck now. It's kind of like drafting your deck. Um, so out of the 36 possible cards, I have to choose 18. I can choose probably at least. I think I can choose literally 18 board control ones, or uh, yeah, 18 board control ones out of 36. So I don't even have to worry about killing psychers or flyers or have warlords. I don't care about any of that. I can pick just standing on these objectives and holding multiple. I'll do fine there. Um, and it doesn't give up that many kill points either. So just like Nova, I'll give up Reaper, and that's about it. And at ETC, I don't even give up that many kill points. So I think I should be fine in multiple formats. It's a nice list like that. Very cool. I'm glad you could ask yourself that question. That was good job. That's that is fantastic Thanks. podcasting, Thanks, Nick. Guys. <laughs> very, very well done. <laughs> okay. Well, um, now I will say that is it for part one, our strategy discussion on his Tyranid and GSC list. Uh, if you want to hear more, we're going to go deep into details of optimal play in individual matchups and uh, really, really dig deep into sort of the uh, nuance of playing the list in part two, which is available to patrons only. So if you haven't signed up for Patreon, I, I will tell you that it is an excellent value. 
uh, for a couple reasons. First, we're going to have this discussion, and we've had this type of discussion for now, I don't know, 33 different um, players, including the likes of Richard Siegler, Jim Vessel, TJ Lanigan, um, Nick Nanavati, John Lennon, you know, you know, just just like a who's who of 40K. And you get to get all of their thoughts and just it really, really helps you understand the game. So that's that's my pitch for the Patreon. You guys should definitely sign up for it. Then um, the only other thing I'm going to bring up is I've started another podcast called uh, 40K Today, which is a daily 15-minute podcast. And I'm going to put an episode of this at the end of this episode. So if you hang out after our bump at the end, there'll be a 40K Today episode just for you guys to try out and see if you like. And if you like that, you can check us out at 40K Today. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk to you soon. Wait, 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 wait. We have to thank our friends over at Frontline Gaming. I did that earlier, but we can do that again. Yeah, Frontline Gaming is fantastic. Um, as a matter of fact, this you guys could really help them out right now. They do a lot for the community. If you have models you've been thinking about getting, it would be a good time for you to go to FrontlineGaming.org and just pick something up to support those guys uh, because – like everyone, it's a tough time for local businesses everywhere. Yeah. Frontline is no different. Um, so, uh, if you are thinking about buying models because you're bored at home, maybe build them while you're listening to Art of War podcasts after you buy them from Frontline Gaming. Yeah, nope, fantastic. All right, everyone, peace and happiness to y'all, and stay safe out there uh, and enjoy your social distancing. Wash your hands. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com, where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time. This is 40K Today. 40K news so big that it has to be made by Forge World. Welcome to 40K Today. I'm Steve Joel and this is your 15-minute daily deep dive into the world of 40K. It's Wednesday the 25th of March and today on the show our faction focus is Orcs. Jeff Poole is one of the best there is. Surprising plenty of people with his run at the LVO recently. So in part two of today's show, we get his take on the latest Psychic Awakening book, Saga of the Beast. Is there anything good in there for the Greenskins? And what does he think of the new gas called Thracker? First up, though, let's check in with what's going on in our hobby. These are strange days in 40K and, in fact, in everything around the world. So if you're trying to figure out where things are, tournament-wise, Tony Pierce has all the information you need. Tony's an analyst with 40K Stat Center and the Best in Faction podcast, and he spoke with John Damaris about what's going on on the tournament scene, if anything at all. Okay, Tony, 
normally in this segment, I would be asking you about what happened over the weekend. Uh, but the, today, I think I'm going to do something different. I'm going to ask you about what didn't happen. So um, as we all know, with the COVID-19 virus that's running around rampant as a pandemic across the world, uh, a lot of events, actually, I would say most of events have been canceled. So is that what you're seeing right now? Uh, yeah. So there are a couple, I think, that were trying to straggle in this last weekend, but we didn't really uh, report on any of them just because it's we're trying to de-incentivize even people trying to do anything. Um, I know a lot of people are kind of retreating to the virtual simulators, tabletop simulator or Vassal, which is nice. Um, but like other than that, there's not really anything going on. Um, the announcement was made today that the ITC is kicking it to the regional reps if they even want to issue tokens. And so um, everyone's just kind of on hiatus right now. That's John speaking with Tony Pierce. Hey, while we're on the tournament scene, a shout out to our friends Val and Peter from the 40K Stat Center podcast. They're great guys, and their podcast is without doubt one of the best there is. And it's a shame to report that they're having to rest it for a while. So for a start, no tournaments means no stats. And also, they're both working so hard in their respective proper jobs that all of the work required to put out a podcast of that quality is not possible. So we hope you're back in business soon, boys. We love what you do, and we're missing you already. Away from the competitive scene, there's plenty going on. People staying indoors, modeling and painting and watching battle reports and waiting on the next cool thing. Alex Bainter, 40K Today's content producer, has been keeping an eye on new releases and cool stuff and just what's going on. John caught up with Alex about all of it. Hey, Alex, let's get into what you're excited about coming up this weekend. From what I understand, there's a lot going on at Mini Wargaming. What uh, You want to let people know what's going on there? Yeah, so Mini Wargaming has, um, uh, they're based out of Canada, and they have had to uh, close down because they're a non-essential business. And um, I know a lot of people may be shocked about that, that uh, Warhammer is not an essential business, but... <laughs> Um, they wanted to let everyone know that they will still be making, um, battle reports, uh, just from their own houses. It won't be as, um, high quality with the lighting and everything, but they're going to still be making bat reps for everyone. And they will be posting some of their, um, vault videos. So that's their, um, exclusive membership videos, uh, to their YouTube channel as well. Cool. So if you want some good content to consume, it sounds like mini wargaming might be a good place to go. Yeah. All right, let's talk about, you said Winners SEO is uh, doing some fun stuff over there. Uh, what did you see from them? Uh, okay, so Winters SEO is a, another battle report channel. Um, and earlier today, I believe he put out a, a pretty funny video about um, playing Warhammer during this quarantine. And it was, it was a pretty funny video. I thought people may uh, like to see that. Yeah, well, what was the gist of it? Like, what, uh, what made um, it funny it was, to you? It was um, playing Warhammer by yourself, pretty much. So he was playing a game by himself, but he brought out a, a, uh, a like one of the Forge World Titans um, versus like two Dreadnought, like uh, the Orc Dreadnought things, like the Gork and Mork Dreadnought, you know? Yeah, the Gorkonauts and Morkonauts. Yeah, that yeah, like yeah, Gorkonauts. Yeah, it was it was a pretty funny video. There's a lot of jokes in that video. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes for people to check it out. That's Winners SEO. And then I guess the big news for this weekend is the Adepticon preview is going to be online since obviously there's no Adepticon this weekend, but Games Workshop is going to forge forward with uh, with the preview. 
Did you have any um, speculation as to what that's going to be all about? Oh, yeah. So there is a lot of um, rumors going on about what could be the um, the big release or big preview um, this weekend. And um, so a few of them are new Primaris bikes and land speeders. Um, this is based off of a very, very blurry image that was um, leaked to some YouTubers um, a few months ago, I believe, earlier this year. Um, so we could see an official announcement about that. Um, we Ooh, could see Primaris bikes. My white scars are excited, or actually, your white <laughs> scars. <laughs> <laughs> um, we could see the announcement for the next uh, Psychic Awakening book, which is rumored to be Engine War. Right. We could see a official announcement about the new Fabius Bio model, which was really or er, hinted at um, a few weeks ago. Um, we could see some new previews for the Warhammer animations, which are Angels of Death, Warhammer Adventures, and the Warhammer Anthology, which I'm really excited about for that, and I really hope we see something from the Angels of Death. I think we're all excited about that, right? And uh, yeah, the Angel of Death looks like it's going to be awesome. Like It just looks like it's going to be incredible. So Yeah. And I guess the only other thing maybe that's on the docket is I have heard rumors that potentially – they may be previewing Ninth Edition, which would launch later this summer. Have you heard oh, anything about that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ninth Edition. So a lot of people are saying that Ninth Edition isn't going to be too much of like a huge like Jurassic or drastic change. It's just going to be like minor changes, more like an eight point five edition. That's interesting. So if they do announce a Ninth Edition, I'm kind of excited for that because um, you know with a new edition always comes some core rule changes, and it gives them a chance. <clears throat> to address some of the the holes in the game. And it seems like every edition makes the game a little better. So that is exciting. Uh, and one more, like one that I'm really hoping to uh, see is um, in September of 2019, uh, GW put out one of their um, articles on the community page saying that they were going to be teaming up with Marble, Marvel. And I really hope that we get some kind of follow-up on that. Oh, so maybe like a comic book? Yeah, 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 comic book. Yeah, 40K comic would be amazing. Okay, well, that's what's in the news for this weekend. Have a great day. That's John speaking with Alex Bainter, 40K Today's content producer. So keep an eye on our Facebook for more links to breaking news and all the cool stuff. Next up, Jeff Paul gives his breakdown of the new Psychic Awakening book, Saga of the Beast, from the Orcs' point of view. The Greenskins have been waiting a while for this. Was it worth it? Today's episode of 40K Today is brought to you by Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming is a one-stop shop for all your Warhammer hobby needs, discounted products, American-made gaming mats and terrain, and a full line of miniatures painting service and daily hobby content. And this can all be found at FrontlineGaming.org. And we're back. The latest Psychic Awakening book is Saga of the Beast. Orc players have been waiting for a little love for a long time. One of the best in the business at marshalling boys and knobs and big mechs is Jeff Paul, uh, he's had an early peek through the pages, and he spoke to John about what's in the new book for Orcs. All right, Jeff, people are excited about the new Psychic Awakening for the Orcs, and we figured you'd be the guy to talk to you. So tell us, what do you think of Gaskell? Oh, Gaskell. Oh, oh, 12 wounds. How, how, I, how I hate thee. <laughs> um, I, honestly, I do not like the new Gaskell. I was running a list before Psychic Awakening came out with Gaskell in it and a bunch of uh, Gretchen 
and he was perfect. He like couldn't be targeted. He just sits around, keeps everyone buffed up, and then uh, new new Gaskell comes out, and he has twelve wounds and can be the target of shooting, which is, you know, it's not that huge of a deal because he has um, the rule where he can only take four wounds in a phase, which is cool, uh, and it's very kind of it's very thematic. It's kind of neat, but. The reality is his biggest downfall, in my opinion, is that he lost the infantry keyword. So he's now a monster, which means he can't walk through walls. He can't Kool-Aid man into a building and kill things. He cannot benefit from his own aura to advance and charge, which is kind of a silly thing. I'm sure they – I'm hoping they FAQ that. Um, he can't benefit – you can't, like, cast a jump on him. You can't uh, use Feel No Pain or a, met, a meta of uh, – sorry, a, a pain boy on him to heal him. Uh, there is like a stratagem that you can do with a pain boy to heal him, but he loses like all these cool rules that orcs have access to because he's a monster now. So that is to me the big the big rub. Like the fact that he has twelve wounds, it's kind of mitigated by the fact that he can only lose four wounds a phase. Um, so if you're just if your opponent is just shooting at him, he's gonna at least last three turns. And if you're likely to have a pain boy in there who can heal him with a with a meta squig stratagem for d3 uh, wounds every turn so he's probably gonna last four turns maybe five turns depending on how many uh, hit points you heal back with the meta squig stratagem if your opponent's only shooting at him but the game as it lasts now i mean like gray knight paladins could just jump up shoot him in the sh in the psychic phase and then some someone else can shoot him in the, the shooting phase so there's a lot of opportunities for him to lose more than four wounds in a turn um which kind of like uh to me well, yeah, yeah. Target yeah. smites, you know, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of ways to get around it, right? Um, which certainly you're makes sense. Kind of, yeah, and you kind of force your, I mean, that's kind of a good and a bad thing, because you can kind of force your opponent to overcommit to try and kill Gaskell, um, which is neat. Um, but in my particular way I play orcs is I just play like a bunch of infantry. So when you suddenly add something that's like a good target for a Laz cannon, it doesn't really mesh with my style of orcs. Like in another list, he might be really good, um, but... You know, obviously, I haven't had much. I'm on Corona lockdown, so I haven't had. Not that I have it or anything, but I just we're working right. from home, and everyone's on lockdown, so um, I haven't had a chance to try him out yet with his new rules. But I, I don't know. It's something that I definitely I'm going to buy the model and try him out. But it's not my uh, cup of tea, really, so, competitively. Just to summarize, then we'd say competitively, um, maybe not the best choice, but really fun. Right. So, yeah, and, like, and there I, might be a, a, a niche form in a different kind of list, right? You know, where he, you're going to use him as a beat stick. You kind of, you can teleport him in, so he deep strikes. He can make a charge, and once he starts getting in there, like on turn three, like if I, I feel like if you're going to use him competitively, you you deep strike him on turn three or something when you're when your shock attack guns have picked up your opponent's anti tank weaponry. And he comes down on turn three, and he's a really big pain in the ass because your opponent doesn't have the tools at that point necessarily to deal with him. And at that point, his his you know they have maybe if you have bottom of turn, they have three turns to kill him. And if they right. don't have the ability to do more than four wounds in one phase, like if they're only a shooting army, like against Tau, if you bring him down on the bottom of three, they have turns four, five, and six to kill him. And if they don't do four wounds gonna. to him every turn, they're not going to kill him. And if they do, they kill him at the top of six, so it's not like it's a huge deal. I mean, you can they can obviously overwatch him, which is a different phase. Right. So, you know, it, you might have the opportunity to do more damage to him like that. But that's kind of what I'm talking about. You use him if you're going to use him competitively. It's kind of like you bring him in at the late game, and hopefully your opponent's tools to kill him have been depleted at that stage. Okay, cool. Well, we've talked about Gasco. Let's just quickly talk about is there anything in the new rules that came out in the, the PA book that have you excited? 
No. Uh, so the newest, I mean, yeah, there's some cool stuff in there, but the thing I was really jazzed up about getting was the access to the strategy that everyone else is getting access to where you get to pick a new warlord trait for some other character. We didn't get that. We got something that's kind of a comparable, though. We got a you can upgrade a war boss to give them a four up invulnerable save and plus one wound and plus one attack. That's a really really good stratagem. You can't use it if you have Gazkol in your army, but like my army makes huge use of that because orcs have no invulnerable saves on their characters. They have a six up armor save for the most part. So getting access to a four up invulnerable save on one of your key war bosses is really important because war bosses provide a lot of benefits for orcs. They can allow them to advance and charge, and they mitigate morale. So that's it's really big, and they're kind of like they're you know, beat stick melee characters. So you're gonna ha- you're gonna see these guys with power claws and uh, rushing in on war bikes to just crump things. And now they have an invulnerable save, which is a kind of a cool upgrade. Uh, other stratagems you get, you get um, there's there's a, ver- a variety of other kind of n- neat stratagems for a lot of the uh, new vehicles that the orcs have. All those buggy vehicles that came out with the Codex release. And there's a lot of these quote-unquote custom jobs. So they're kind of like in, in lieu of relics, orcs got custom jobs that they can upgrade some of these buggies with and Gorkonauts and Morkonauts with and Killicans and a bunch of vehicles. And there's some play there with some of the uh, Gorkonaut upgrades. Because a Gorkonaut really is, and Morkonauts are like little mini knights. They have like T8, 18 wounds, and you can deep strike them. So this is kind of the same idea with Gaskol. If you deep strike a knight on turn three, uh, with only 18 wounds, but it still has, you know, some good shooting and it can make a 3d6 inch charge at a deep strike with a stratagem, you know, that gives so- suddenly a lot of play to that that unit if you can buff up some of its guns or its melee weapons with these custom jaws, which you can now. So I think you'll see some play with Gorkonauts and Morkonauts, um in general. Well, certainly, certainly it'll be a different play style, right? Because, you know, orcs for a long time have been sort of like a tide of dudes. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, getting these other models on the table isn't a bad thing. So I think... It'll be interesting to see how competitive that is, but it does sound like fun at the very least. That's Jeff Poole speaking with our own John Damaris. A big thank you to Jeff, who's no stranger to the world of podcasting. Uh, Check out our show notes for links to the various podcasts that Jeff is involved in. Uh, And also check out his recent Art of War uh, podcast, his Art of War series, his interviews with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Really, really good stuff. And that's it for another day in 40K. Thanks so much for joining us again. We hope you get some time to get through the work in progress on your hobby desk today. Uh, Thanks again to our content producer, Alex Painter, for his part of the show and our technical producer, Seamus Ronan, for all his hard work in getting the show together too. Tomorrow on the program, Reese Robbins, the man behind the ITC, talks to us about what's happening with ITC points now that there are no tournaments left, and what their plans are for handling the current situation. And Shailen from the In the Finest Hour podcast joins us for our Women in Warhammer series. We'll see you tomorrow. Until then, for John Damaris, I'm Steve Joel, and that's what's happening in 40K today.